welcome to the latest episode of the Noid Knowledge Podcast. I'm Meg LaRue, your podcast co-host and group editorial director of Cannabis Science and Technology and Cannabis Patient Care Magazines. And I'm Evan Friedman, Vice President of Scientific Cell Company and your other host here at the Noid Knowledge Podcast. This month, we are excited to be joined by Nathan Johnson, PhD, the co-founder and CEO of Vern Bioanalytics. Nathan is an innovator in cannabis genetic and pathogen testing and analysis. Nathan's career has spanned a number of industries, including pharmaceuticals, oncology research, and animal model development with prestigious organizations such as Harvard Medical School, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, and H3 Biomedicine. In addition, Nathan has more than 15 prestigious peer-reviewed publications in journals such as Nature and Cell. He holds a PhD in bioinformatics from Worcester Polytech Institute in Worcester, Massachusetts, an MS in biomedical sciences from the University of Missouri, and a BS in biology and a minor in chemistry from Evangel University in Springfield, Missouri. Nathan's goal to provide safe and quality access to medical cannabis for patients worldwide is the driving force behind Vern Bioanalytics support for cultivators in producing consistent and profitable medical grade cannabis. And for him, that all starts with providing health diagnostics for the plant to the cultivator. Additionally, Nathan is involved in a number of startups such as Cell Bioengines, Botane Sciences, Salient Holdings, and Cannabisc in an effort to promote improvements across the entire cannabis value chain. Today, we'll be discussing Nathan's background, knowledge about cannabis genetics, some of the challenges related to hops latent viroid, and more. Let's jump right in and expand our Noid knowledge. So thanks so much for joining us today, Nathan. Um, We normally like start our episodes with some background and context for the listeners. So can you kind of share your cannabis origin story? How did you get to where you are now? And did you ever think that this was where your career would lead you? Thank you so much for having the opportunity to speak here. Um, No, the short answer is I did not expect to be here in my career. Um, That is a very straightforward, easy answer. Um, I thought I would be doing more cancer research, doing more traditional science and biotech. Um, My origin story is back in 2018, um, I was working at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Harvard Medical School, where my job was literally to figure out how to cure cancer. And I was super frustrated with the lack of progress because typically when these drug companies make compounds to improve the quality of care for cancer, you're talking only one or 2% improvement. And that is just not enough to make a really huge dent in a lot of these patients' lives. And they spend all this time to doing that. And I got exposed to some cancer research out of Israel and I saw drastic improvements. But on the other side, there is also some research that shows that I actually can make it worse and also neutral. And so that that really got me curious about what is this plant? Why is it has such a weird effects? Why is it so variable? And it should be pretty straightforward if it's just the same thing. And not surprising to anybody in the cannabis industry, cannabis is nothing, anything but a single plant. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, and then back in 2019, um, at the time, just a really good friend of mine and now co-founder of Vern, Um, He is a contract lawyer for a lot of the hemp growers. Uh, They receive several feminized seeds, supposedly. Um, And it turns out uh, it's not an uncommon story in the industry that they weren't actually feminized. And a lot of them lost their shirt in terms of trying to grow on on feminized seeds. And a lot of them actually lost their farms or to some extent lost something. 
And so he knew at the time that I was looking for a new startup idea. My previous two startups, while I was working at Dana-Farber H3, I was always on the side working on the side hustle, uh, weren't working out. And he knew I was looking for a new way to do something. And he showed me the cannabis industry and said, hey, look, there's problems below here. What do you, do you want? Do you want to come and join? They could use someone with their background to innovate and after about a day of spending the time with a hemp farmer that was one of those people that had, didn't get feminized seeds, I was sold to join and change careers completely. So wow. it was not the plan. Um, but after lots of discussions with family and everything else made the transition because <laughs> it was not come from a traditional Christian family. And uh, that was a interesting conversation to have about my ambitions to be a cannabis researcher of some sorts. So. <laughs> Are they are they like acceptive of it now? Do they like accept it, and or was it, um, is it still a challenge? It was interesting how much um, I perceived that there was a bias when there actually wasn't a bias. Uh, when we actually did end up finally have that conversation, when I started telling about what I wanted to do with it, why there is a medical value to it. It's not just about getting high, even though that part can actually have a medical aspect. They, they actually confided to me that, one, they may have tried a CBD product or they may have tried different things. And I was like, oh, this is a very different conversation than I thought. I thought I'd have to spend defending myself. And they were okay with it completely. They were completely supportive. Um, my, medical, my mom's now a medical marijuana patient, as an example. So Wow, that's great. Um, yeah, so definitely not. But <laughs> it's amazing what that perceived bias makes you think that's going to happen, but doesn't actually end up being that way. I, I love that story because uh, the, we're all afraid of the perceived bias and and avoiding the conversation due to essentially an assumption is is you're shown immediately that that's not necessarily right and you see what happens when you assume and. Um, it's it's reassuring also to hear that, like, you know, we hear these statistics, 67, 69% of, of Americans believe in, in legalization and all of that. And you're like, well, I mean, that must encompass a lot of conservatives. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. It, seeing that play out uh, and not just looking at a statistics and, and assuming that is uh, is reassuring, I think. Um, oh, and it, and it opens up um, conversations that I didn't expect to have with my family. Uh, like, for example, I mentioned to my grandmother, who is very traditional, very not, was not part of that, was part of that perception in the, several years ago in terms of when, when drug, all the drug wars were there. And I found out that my uncle, who was a huge advocate for cannabis, could have actually hugely benefited from it, and he ultimately ended up passing away. And cannabis could have had a major role in, in changing his life. But because he was in Nebraska, who was still very much a lockdown state, he could not get access to anything despite years of trying to convince them the other way. And so it's just interesting seeing those stories and going, come on, we got to do something better. Yeah. So, mm. Yeah. There's, and it, there, there's definitely a better way. And it, I, I'm, I'm happy to see us all on the path and having, having, highly skilled, uh, highly directed scientists like yourself in the space will only benefit us all. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So let's dig right into to the meat of the discussion here. 
hops latent viroid, dudding, <laughs> HIV or AIDS for cannabis, whatever you want to call it. Like you and I saw Dr. Zamir Punja from Simon Fraser University speak extensively on this scourge of the industry at the Emerald Conference earlier this year. And while his findings were academically interesting, functionally, they were pretty depressing. Um, can you share with our listeners what hops latent thyroid is, the problems it causes, that, those impacts on the industry, and, uh, you know, the the state of affairs now and how we might move forwards? Yeah, certainly. So Dr. Zamir and I just give some context. Uh, we actually are going to be co-authors on a peer-reviewed publication to actually summarize all the demographic kind of data about hopslet and virate, the pathology of it, what is hopslet and virate, and why is it a concern? And there'll be a subsequent paper that describes how to deal with it um, later this year. So those will be two papers back to back that will be peer reviewed and get out there in the in the field. Um, and so Dr. Zamir and I and his work is phenomenal because I could pitch him ideas and back and forth, and we can try to understand what this is, and what essentially this is the the bad characteristics that uh, Evan is describing here is the worst case scenario. I want to say worst case, the average scenario is that you lose half of your biomass and 40% drop in your THC percent. And the worst case scenario is you lose your whole grow room. And the worst, worst case scenario is that you lose your two or three cycles after the fact. And the reason why that is, is because this, this pathogen has three major characteristics, I would say, make it really, really powerful. Um, the most powerful, um, similar to so COVID, I would actually describe it as COVID of cannabis because it's it stays so silent for so long and then it hits hard. So it typically hits hard in flower, which is when you need the plant. And it hits hard so much that you don't get the flower as big as you want, nor is the, the oil, the resin production, what you expect. And it turns out from Dr. Zamir's work, um, he showed nice electron microscope pictures of the trichromes being completely obliterated. And my hypothesis, it's because the stem that holds up that trichrome is fragile. And so when the oil starts producing, it literally pops it and breaks it down like a balloon. And so therefore, the production of cannabinoids doesn't actually happen because you don't have the infrastructure. And so it not only is silent, it not only causes really, really harm but it's also really hard to kill, um, which is weird, especially to someone like myself. And the reason why that's weird is because it's a viroid. And what a viroid is, is it's essentially a naked piece of RNA. So a virus has a protein coat over it that basically protects it from the environment. And then it uses the insides to inject itself into a cell. But a naked RNA by itself should traditionally be really, really fragile if it leaves, it leaves the cell. And the interesting thing about this is that this is anything but fragile. Um, it can live in the soil for about six months. It can live in the water that comes off the plant for a month. It can live outside of the plant on a surface for about a week. And those are all still functionally infectious material. And then the things that are used to try to kill it is that bleach is really the only option. And you really can't bleach your plants to kill it inside of it. So really the options are prevention, detection, um, maintenance, making sure it doesn't get a hold in the facility. If it gets a hold in the facility, your options are either burn it or tissue culture. Both processes are not fun or fast or simple. And so that's why when we describe people that you really, really need to test for this, because once it gets in, 
you may not have the cash flow to recover. And if you are working on, say, 30% margins as a company and you have something that's already reducing your margins by 40%, and not only that one cycle, but possibly the two or three cycles after that, not everybody has enough cash to get out of that hole and get out of that slump before they can make it better. And so this is one of the biggest needs and the biggest problems in the industry is because a lot of these new license holders that get these these uh, licenses and they really want to start growing cannabis and they get seeds or clones from somebody and they don't consider the ramifications of pests and pathogens, they may lose their shirt the next year because they haven't taken these practices to heart. Um, and unfortunately, this is not the only pathogen out there. There's about 90 that have been identified. This is just the one that's most popular at this moment, but it's going to keep coming back and back because like most crops, there's things that want to eat what you're growing. And so you have to pre make preventative measures in place to, to keep it safe. So Hopsite Envirate is is a nasty little bugger, <laughs> and it's not really going to go away anytime soon, unfortunately. How, how prevalent is it out there in the field? Um, based on our testing, at least 80% of the cultivators that we test for have it in some level. Um, we're not the only lab that has reported that number. Um, other labs across the country that do testing report similar numbers. So... What I can predict right off the bat is anybody that comes to us who has never tested before, I guarantee they have it in their facility. Those who have do cleaning, good, clean SOPs and have testing are usually the ones that don't have that problem. Um, and then usually when we test for them, they usually are in the minor of don't have it. But so, so it's not selection bias like, oh, there's something wrong. Now I'm going to test. And so you're seeing all these people with it because they've selected to test. No, it's it's more of the environment hasn't shown itself for the virus to, to rear its head up. And you can't see it unless you test for it. Um, by the time you see symptoms, there is already about four or five million copies of the virus for every single pinky size of piece of leaf. So by the time you see symptoms, <laughs> wow. everybody's got it in that room. And because it transfers by touch or by your cutting or your clones or through genetics, through seeds, it actually transfers as well. Um, if you're not looking for it, it's hard to find it. And you may, because the symptoms of this viroid is ranging from, it looks like nutri nutrition deficiencies of different types to just weird characteristics. Um, that's the most common name that we get when people come to us about the viroid. They'll say, my plant's not performing how I normally see it. Um, but if you're a new grower with new genetics, new plants, you might know what actually normal is. And so the, Dr. Zamir mentioned this in his talk is it's really hard to find when something's infected or not, because if your whole field is infected, you don't see normal. And so if you have a normal plant side by side with a, a with an infected plant, it's really, really easy to see the difference. But if you have your whole field infected, you don't know. And you think it's normal to get the output that you get. Um, because there are some attractive symptoms of it. Like, for example, you're going to have a short plant. So if you're growing indoors, you don't have to worry about topping. It's already short. <laughs> um, trimming is actually really nice because the, the plant is fragile. So when you do cuttings, it will just come right off. Um, but that also means that there's something in the plant that's making it weak. Um, mm -hmm. It's not healthy. It's not vigorous as it should be. So. so what kind of like testing protocol would you recommend for cultivators? Like, you know, from start to finish, like should they be testing for this in their soil and then testing all along the way and like how often? Um, so the, the best way to prevent this is to test anytime any plants come to the facility, whether it's seeds, clones, 
on a regular basis. So you want to make sure that your source of plant material is clean. Um, and then the next problem, the next way to do testing is to do it on a regular basis. So the doubling rate of this viroid is about two hours. And so if you start getting the, if the viroid gets the, the signal to start expanding within one week, it's going to have lots and lots of itself. Um, and so the, the recommendation that we always have is to do like a, a time series testing on your mothers just to make sure nothing's there to begin with. And then to do like regular on-site or through the mail testing to make sure nothing's popping up. Because the nice thing about this testing is that if there is a signal for it to flare up, you will detect it in these muffler tests before you actually see symptoms. And we all have had people crying on the phone when they when we, they see a positive one on our test. They're like, no, 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 this is actually a good thing. It means we have a chance to save your farm and you're not going to lose your shirt. Whereas if you came to us when you already saw symptoms, I would say, good luck. You're not going to get the harvest you want from this one. Do you have the funds? Do you have the, the foresight to actually clean this up? And if you don't, you might as well close up shop or invest it and, and get actually a good program in place. Um, and so the best testing that is, exists through us as well as on the market as a whole is what's called molecular-based testing. So it's an RNA-based viroid. And what that means is that it looks for a unique signature that is on that viroid, amplifies it to it, finds it, and that kind of test will tell you yes or no. Um, and there's both on-site and through the mail options that are available. So that's the power of it is that you don't have to wait those two days. You can just get a quick answer. But the real power is to pair it with a lab to help you because once you find it, you got to find that source and get rid of that source. Otherwise, it's going to keep coming back up. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately, that's the same for all pathogens. So like your your regulatory molds that you don't that you get through, if you don't find the source, it's going to keep making more of itself and so on and so forth for the 90 plus things that could infect it. What's the biggest misunderstanding or challenge that you see with cultivators when they have a breakout? Like, are they, do they think it'll be like cleaned up really quickly or, you know, like what kind of challenges are they facing? Um, the first conversation we have is whether or not they've even heard of Hopslet and Redwood. So if you're on the East Coast, usually you never even heard of it. If you're on the West Coast, you are very familiar with it. Um, those are usually the best people to talk to because I don't have to explain to them anything. They understand the pain. Um, people on the East Coast or in new markets, they may not even have heard of it because it was only discovered about four or five years ago. Um, and while it was originally in hops, um, the presence in cannabis was it really wasn't really uncovered until about then. And so the first education point is this is real. This isn't a myth. This can cause you harm. Second conversation to have is how do we define it? How do we get rid of it? Because sometimes these growers, because the way they grow, they may never have seen symptoms. And so they think they're fine. Um, And so the first question is always, let's do a a surveillance of your grow to see if we find it or not. Um, And the symptoms I'm talking about is usually that heat stress is really what causes it to flare up. But the real trigger is not really known why exactly that is one trigger. But there's also other triggers that seem to pop up as well. Stress and heat seem to be the two major consistency that we see. Um, and so the next question is just, what is this? How to get rid of this? And then the third one, which is a little harder to digest for them, is that you can't stop testing. You can't stop looking for it. Um, because guess what? You got people coming in on your facility. You got people touching it everywhere. You got genetics coming in and out. There's no such thing as a truly closed system. And so if you don't have a, a sensor in place, like a pack of butter word, to be looking for this, it could show up without you knowing it. Um, because it's not a one-time event. 
Um, it can happen at any point, and it's not the only thing that could happen. Um, and that is just like the United Nations estimates 20 to 40% global crop loss is due to improper pest and pathogen management. Um, yeah. And so I like to throw that statistic around just to give people an estimate of just this is not normal or abnormal to cannabis. This is this is plants in general because everything likes to eat each other. And mm -hmm. just because you throw something on your plant to prevent it doesn't mean it's going to try to find a way. Life will try to find a way to get around that. And so it's always an arms race. It's a biological arms race, basically. <laughs> so. so uh, it, it sounds like you're you're doing quite a bit of your own research on the viroid itself, amongst other things. Um, where is your research right now? Uh, do, do you have some kind of solution? Uh, are there what what have you lined up as next steps or goals that you you yeah. think you can accomplish? So we've been studying the viroids since 2020. Um, and the reason why we started doing our own basic research is because there was no data available. There were, at the time, there was literally six papers that were describing the viroid, half of which were really, I would describe, marketing material. And there was very little actual information on what is this. And so guess what we did? We developed a test to find it, and we started cultivating it. And we've been culturing the viroid for three years now. Um, and what that means is that we purposely infect plants, see what happens, purposely try to figure out where to test, how to test, how often to test, where to test, um, just trying to understand how this thing moves around the whole system. Um, and now we have a really, really good idea on what products in the market work and don't work um, because we've also been testing all the products out there, just trying out on the viroid to see if it gets rid of it. Um, and then we also try to understand what is the actual, a good testing protocol. That's always the first question is, it's really, really easy to find something that's positive. It's really, really hard to, to be confident that a negative is truly a negative. Um, did you just, did you happen to make a mistake? Did you happen to test the wrong region of the plant? Did you happen to test the wrong time point? Like, there's lots of reasons on why it may come up negative when it's truly not negative. Um, and so where we are at in this process is that we're confident that nothing in the market really is, is gonna get rid of it if it's within the, the, the plant. There are a couple of products in the market that are really good at the environment, but that's not really the, the real problem. Um, the real problem is how to get rid of it out of the plant because people can make mistakes. Maybe they didn't spray that day, but there was a reason on why there was a failure point and the virus got into your plants for some reason. And so there really needs to be a solution to get rid of it. Um, and so internally, we have identified a couple of ways to do that. Uh, we're actually raising investment to go to the next level to actually prove that hypothesis and, and do that. But it's definitely going to be a year, year and a half out before we actually have something that we can actually try to get rid of it. Um, and unfortunately, that is actually something that's universal for all plant viruses. There's not really good things to get rid of it once it gets into the plant. There are good things for the environment. And this is nothing. Unfortunately, all the things that advertise to kill plant viruses, they may or may not actually have validated that, or they just use this general principle that if it kills this virus, it should kill all viruses. And so we internally biobank a lot of these pathogens and try to identify what actually kills it because seeing is believing. And I, as a grower or as a scientist, would want to know, is this actually real or not before I trust it as a general purpose tool? So it's a combination of it's coming. Um, there are probably some genetic markers that are used on the plant that could prevent it from actually taking over because there are some symptoms 
of different plant strains that seem to be resistant to this this thing. But I'm not talking like resistant, resistant. I'm just talking about resistance to the point that it won't hurt your crop, but doesn't mean it's going to kill it. Um, and so killing it would be the ideal goal, get rid of it completely. But unfortunately, there may not be a, a reality of that. So, so more like a uh, typhoid Mary kind of scenario where they're infected, but they're going to remain latent indefinitely. Yes. Um, and that would be the ideal. Uh it's actually the same way with AIDS, actually. Um, AIDS, uh, the whole purpose of AIDS is to get it below a detectable threshold. It doesn't mean it's gone. It's just below the threshold of actually causing harm. And so these patients will take like antivirals to reduce the load of that virus to actually replicate itself. And therefore, um, the patient is now actually doing a lot better and actually thriving. Um, probably the same thing with the plant uh, is to have some sort of a solution that would be sprayed that would maintain that environment uh, to keep that plant alive and healthy and growing that is not harmful to people. And so that's why it's going to take some time to get there because you got to go through all those legal loopholes. It's something that you can treat mother cuttings with, Exactly. Mothers or cuttings or um, testing will never go away because you always want to make sure that whatever you're using, the pathogen didn't figure out a way to get around it. Um, But we need we def we desperately need something to knock down viral viral loads by ninety plus percent, and that just doesn't simply exist. Mm. Um, ju- just to go back a little bit, you you touched a point that uh, I think the listeners might want to know a little bit more about. You said, um, you said about false negatives. Maybe you you sampled the wrong area of the plant or something like that. Is there an ideal region of the plant to try and sample one that, you know, even if you're completely latent, that's where you're still going to find it? So um, in terms of Hopsa and Viroid, the pathology of the plant or the infection is is really going to be one of three routes that will get into the plant. One is going to be you take a cutting, you, your pruners, your shears have the viroid on them. So when you take that cutting from the mother plant, it will go right into that location. Um, the next is going to be from seed when you pop it. So it's going to be everywhere, no matter what. And the third location is going to be through the root system. So it's going to be in the soil or the water runoff from another plant. And it's going to uptake it from that location. And so the, the, the general trend of the viroid when it goes through the plant is essentially the roots will act like a sink source. Um, that is the general trend of the research that's out there is that the plant will basically, if it goes through the cutting of the, of the plant, it will then go straight down to the root and then it will gradually spread throughout the entire plant. Um, the challenge though is roots are like a pipe system. Not all roots are connected to each other. Um, roots and the, the stem part of the plant. Um, the, the stem is kind of like the vesicle that goes through the whole plant. That's the piping. The leaves are going to be different pieces of it. And so our philosophy is doing um, testing on both roots and leaves to give a strong chance of finding it because you don't want to take one or the other. Um, Ideally, you'd sample the whole plant, but no one's going to pay for that kind of process. And so that's why we recommend for um, longitudinal testing, like over the course of several weeks, um, testing a couple places of the plant each time to make sure that um, the viroid's not spreading because time is in your favor because it will spread throughout the plant. And so if you do test over a series of time, you have a stronger chance of finding it. Um, so unfortunately, it's not just a one-off special place that will always be 
because it always ultimately depends on how it got there to begin with. So if you're taking multiple samples from the plant, can you pool them all together and use one test for, for all the biomass you've taken from a single plant? So there's pros and cons to pooling. Um, so if you like take the example of say, um, you take five bananas and you mush them all together and you only take a little piece out of all of them, the composite of all of them is going to be a much smaller subset than if you took an individual banana, for example, or individual leaf. And so the question at that point becomes how much of the viroid is there to begin with? Is one of those five bananas or one of those five leaves have the viroid? And so if you pull it together, because they all assays, all tests have a, have a sensitivity on how much it actually tests, you may miss it if only one of those five actually have it. Now, if one of them is really, really infected, the other four is not, no big deal. You'll find it no matter what. Um, if the, the concern about latent, though, is you may have 100 copies of the viroid in one of those five samples, and if you pull it, it's going to be below the detection threshold of that test. And so we typically do pull root and leaf just because our test is pretty sensitive and we'll be able to find something. But there is still going to be a risk if there's a low number in the root or a low number in the leaf, we won't be able to find it. And that's, again, where the longitudinal testing kind of helps give you that risk assurance of making sure it's there because it should increase in number if it's actually infected and the chances of finding it are going to increase each time you test. Um, but that is also why... Um, a lot of testers, a lot of people skip that longitudinal testing. They just test it once and think they're good. But the reality of it is that it's a living organism. And if there's only, say, 100 copies throughout the entire plant, what's the likelihood of actually finding it is going to be low. Um, you want to add a million or plus to find it. But again, that's that, it's that math problem of sampling and where to look for it. So... We commonly get asked people just for budget regions, they'll ask us to pool, but I always will give them that legal kind of asterisk of, yes, we can pool, but you may lose the chance of finding it. We actually had some, we actually want to have a put a white paper out there as an example from one of our testers who asked us to pool and we gave them that warning. And we actually did the testing all individually, but also did the composite. And guess what? Some of the pathogens we found, we didn't find in the composite, but found in the individual. And that wasn't surprising to us just based on simple math. But not like that. <laughs> so not surprising to you, but uh, what what was the the customer's reaction to that? Uh, they never gave us any reaction. Um, I don't think they cared because uh, they didn't own the company. <laughs> so they were just the grower in the facility being told what they do. So I I bet you it didn't even go up the supply chain in terms of the the decision makers. Mm -hmm. So, but. What about cultivators that have like, you know, huge grows? Like how much sampling should they be doing to kind of monitor this? Um, so there's always the balance between business and science um, whenever it comes to anything like this. Um, ideally, obviously, testing every single individual plant three times would be the best way to go. But no one's going to be able to afford that. Yeah. Um, no one has the budget nor the bandwidth to be able to handle that much data or that much testing. Um, and so our advice is always to think about, or we will talk, we'll talk with them, we'll work with them to come up with a strategy on what is the strongest chance of finding it, given the layout of your grow room or your environment. So any places that could be like central areas that something would pop up, we'll just do regular testing at that location. Um, any places that have intake vents, anything that has any outtake, just, just look for all your, your major risk points that you can find it and do testing there. 
Um, and the second next best place to always test is your mother's. Always test your single source of where you get your plant material from. Um, if you grow from seeds, make sure that the seed breeder tests their mothers and tests their seed producers, as well as the seeds themselves. Um, and also test when you get it in, into your facility as well, because guess who's at most risk is you. So you're going to be the one who has more to lose than them if things come in. So you should not just take their word for it, but you should also test when you receive it because maybe they missed it. Maybe they didn't do enough testing. They only tested once for all you know. Um, and so you just want to have that confidence to make sure that it doesn't get into your facility. Mm-hmm. And that goes for not just the viroid. There is lots of different pathogens, um, Fusarium, Pythium, powdery mildew, lots of different viruses that are out there, so on and so forth. So it's just, as I said, a biological arms race. <laughs> <laughs> This might be a silly question, but has there been any research on like the actual flower that comes from these plants? And like, I know you mentioned that like it has lower THC and other cannabinoid levels, but like, is there any impact on shelf life stability or, you know, anything else that could maybe impact a consumer? Um, The best knowledge to date is that this is a viroid that infects um, just the plant itself and not humans. Um, and the reason why I, I'm pretty confident that's going to be the case, because if it was actually harmful to humans and given the amount of off, how often we find it and how often we found flour with it in a dispensary, there'd be a lot more people who get sick from mm-hmm. smoking cannabis if there was if that wasn't the case. Um, generally speaking, um, plant viruses, plant pathogens don't cross that species barrier between to us, generally mm-hmm. speaking. Um, that's the same for most pathogens. They're usually pretty specific, species unique, um, just because we we are different than a plant, obviously. And those Evolution, viruses, those, right? Yeah, just <laughs> those viruses tried very hard, not theoretically speaking, but actually they just by random chance they were trying very hard to infect that plant, and that plant's different than us, so therefore they are uniquely propositioned to infect that plant, and so. No, at the moment, we don't know if there's any uh, viroid harm to humans. Um, as far as we know, generally speaking, it's the same for almost all plant viruses, viroids, etc. There are actually other viroids out there besides Hopslane viroid, just FYI. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, that is the, um, the general consensus at the moment. And that's just based on, I think it's a pretty good consensus just because otherwise we'd see a lot of people in the hospital or are sick for some reason, mm-hmm. um, yeah, including myself. I mean, I have it actively grown in my house. So if I don't take harm of it getting on my skin or anything like that, so I don't get <laughs> sick. So <laughs> I think it's good. <laughs> so. um, I guess I was also just kind of getting at like, is there, like, I know it impacts the cultivator's bottom line, but like, if I, like, let's say I go and I buy some and I have it tested and it has this, like, is it not going to last as long or like, you know, is it going to impact oh, I see what you're saying. like the, the consumers, like, bottom line kind of like they spent money on this and is it not going to work for them? So the likelihood of top shelf cannabis flower having this viroid is going to be almost nothing, almost nil. Um, And the reason for it is that because you have that high THC loss, um, they wouldn't be able to get to that top shelf flower because Mm -hmm. of this, that percent alone is gone. Um, So the strongest chance of finding it, it's just going to be the, the flower by itself is not going to be as quality with it versus without it. And so in that case, it's not a matter of it's going to be possibly harmful to the the user. It's more about the the quality of what they're actually using for the plant is going to be decreased. 
Um, while we don't have any data, as far as I know, from terpene levels, um, nor from all the other cannabinoids in general, uh, because they all get affected in the same trichome for those cannabinoids, production overall for all cannabinoids should be affected in some level. So if you're looking for a certain comp composition, you're looking for a certain level of the THC or the CBD or the different combinations, because it's all kind of manufactured in the same location, it's all going to be affected over overall. So basically your, your, your ounce that you're going to be buying, if you have the viroid, you might as well just change the price and change the quality right off the bat with it. Um, and you're just not going to be able to, the user's not going to get as much value out of it than they would normally. Mm -hmm. So from that purpose, absolutely. Gotcha. Uh, along those same lines, you, you made mention that um, the, these plants that are infected are more brittle, more, more fragile. Um, and it seems like that translates to the trichomes as well. Um, my understanding is that a lot of the degradation in quality of flower does, is due to the trichomes basically becoming brittle and losing the terpene profiles through the cell walls and, and all of that. So do, do you think it's possible or even likely that infected final product flower has a shorter, you know, quality shelf life? So the two main things the virus seems to affect the plant is the general metabolism as a whole. So general nutrient profile as a whole, which is why it tends to be smaller, crinkly leaves, things of this nature. And then since the number of trichromes is kind of preset before those flowers start developing, um, the virus seems to also affect those trichomes actually developing. So it hits it on two levels. Um, in terms of the quality of the flower, um, it's hard to say. Because what the, the, the best mechanism of action that we can think of for the viroid is it acts like an RNA, RNA interference within the cells itself and interferes with their process. So there's not doesn't seem to be any evidence of degradation on the cannabinoids and terpenes themselves. But in terms of the flower composite as a whole, because it's dudding, because it's smaller than it's supposed to be, um, because it's not getting to the full size that it's supposed to be, your ratio of cannabinoids to that flower is going to be just subpar. This is why I mentioned that it's not going to be quality shelf no matter how you cut it because it's going to be smaller. It's going to be less THC, CBD, so on and so forth than you want. Um, the, the preservation of those cannabinoids and terpenes are probably not affected just because this is, this is not necessarily going to be, a bind, be able to bind to those things and degrade them because it's a naked RNA. It needs the, the cells themselves to do something. But in terms of just the whole process to begin with before it gets to flower, it's not going to be great. Mm -hmm. um, but the one thing I would say to that is, unfortunately, when the plant is infected with the viroid, it usually means it's co-infected with other things. And so the molds, mildews, all those kind of things, they take their opportunists, they will get in there and they'll start causing harm as well. And that can degrade your flower quite substantially. Um, I would argue that is why a lot of people do distillates or do extractions or re irradiation because they're trying to kill these, these opportunist pathogens that, that take, the, take the chance to get on board. Um, I've yet to see flower that comes with these plants that I would call awesome flower that has a viroid. 
Um, I would argue that's probably why a lot of dispensaries just have okay flour, in my opinion. So interesting. You might not have the answer to this, but do you think like this might be a even more prevalent in like the, the gray illicit market, like you know where maybe there's not as much testing, but people can tell that or no testing probably <laughs> um, yeah. that the plants aren't that great looking. So maybe they're just like, oh, we'll just just get it out anywhere to anyone like do you think that that's happening probably um of course if you don't test you don't know if you don't know you can't do anything about it to prevent it um we've had many people reach us out to us and said i've been growing for 10 years and all of a sudden my grow room is just completely obliterated what happened and i was like have you ever tested for the viroid the answer is no i said that's probably pretty sure you got it and then when you start asking them, like, what'd you do differently in the last year or so? Oh, I had my buddy's cuttings come in and I started growing his stuff in my field. It's like, oh, well, there you go. There's your problem. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. so, um, and so a lot of the gray market, a lot of the black market, honestly, a lot of the legal market likes to buy stuff from other people, likes to get clones from other groups. And when they have all this kind of transfer back and forth all the time, it's really easy for it to hitch a ride. And it finds the right environment and it explodes. But if you're growing in your basement, um, if you are a legacy grower that says grown for 30 years and you've only grown the same thing all the time, then maybe you don't have it. But the chances of that happening is low because a lot of cannabis growers like to change stuff. It's a, it's a fun thing to do because this plant's pretty versatile. Hmm. I want to try new seeds. So what happens when you try a new seed and all of a sudden it has a virus in it? Now your whole field is infected. Mm-hmm. So. You know, you mentioned earlier on that tissue culture was a way, right? I think you said tissue mm-hmm. culture. So yep. can you talk a little bit more about that and like why, what challenges doing tissue culture present and like, you know, why that's maybe not more used in the industry when people have this problem? Um, so tissue culture is actually pretty widely used. Oh, okay. um, uh, the idea is that you can get a more vigorous plant if you do tissue culture. Um, now there are lots of companies out there that do tissue culture, some at large scale, some at small scale, um, tissue culture is actually used outside of cannabis. It's actually used in the wider agriculture market quite extensively. Um, think of your orchids or your ornamentals that are in Lowe's Home Depot. Those are actually all from tissue culture and cause they grow the same thing. It's really easy to scale it up and so on and so forth. Um, and the reason why this works for this plant is that if you have a whole plant that's infected, um, the best way is to regrow that plant with plant cells that are not infected with whatever you're doing. So it's commonly a good way to get rid of viroids or viruses. Now, the challenge with that is a lot of tissue culture that's out there, they don't use protocols that actually kill the virus or viruses. What I would call it, it's more of a dilution strategy. So you isolate plant cells that you think have a low number or no number of the viroid. You grow it up, hope you get lucky, see if you find it there or not. If you don't, repeat the same process again. Um, we partnered with a tissue culture company in Massachusetts to develop a protocol that works pretty good. Um, but again, it's it's the same kind of strategy that you're trying to slow it down enough so that you can isolate plant cells that don't have it and then repopulate the whole plant from that. Now, the challenge with that is it's a four-month cycle if you get good, and it can be expensive. Um, range could be anywhere from $1,500 to $10,000 for per strain. Um, and so not everybody is willing to afford that much money just to prevent their, their plants, but there are lots of, there's lots of companies that can do it. Some are better, some are not good, but the bottom line is it's possible, but you need to have a test to validate that they actually did it correctly. Mm -hmm. Um, and unfortunately a lot of that doesn't happen on a regular basis. 
can anyone learn to do tissue culture or do you have to be a scientist? Like, are you like studying the tissues in a microscope? Like I'm, I'm t- I totally don't know anything about this. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I always say that anybody became a scientist. I mean, I became a scientist, uh, but it's also, it's, it's not a matter of if it's a matter of how much time and how much effort needs to go into it to make it happen. Um, tissue culture is a combination of horticulture and chemistry. Um, what essentially you do think of like an agar plate, like think of like agar, um, which is think of like the gelatin that's in, uh, trying to think of a different way. It's not outside of science, but hopefully you have a picture of what that means. (laughs) So, um, essentially what you have, think of like a really small pure dish and you have little plant cells that are growing out of that, out of that dish and they become a full plant Mm -hmm. and they eventually roots. And then you eventually move that to soil or cocoa or whatever. Um, and that is what you're doing there is you're isolating a certain plant cells from the plant called the meristem. Those meristem is essentially like stem cells for the whole plant. And they can give rise to the whole plant from just that single part of that shoot that's at the very end of your leaves. And then um, then you put that into like an auger mixture that has different nutrients in there. Um, there's different hormones, different things in there that basically force the plant to do those different productions. And because everything in plants is hormone to plant dependent and nutrient dependent, you can force a pathway for that plant to make more of itself. Um, is it difficult? No. Is it time consuming? Is there lots of things you should consider? Yes, because you have to be very aseptic um, because you have a lot of nutrients, nutrient rich media. A lot of things like to eat it. So mold, commonly there's mold problems in there. There's commonly other things that like to grow in there. And so there's a lot of nuances to it, um, but it's, it's lots of people can do it. There are companies out there that will help train you, come in, be consultants for a couple months to help get you on board. But for you to be really good at it, you need to devote a significant amount of time to get it. But if you just want to do the basic stuff that, and you just use them as support, absolutely, you can do it. Just needs, just needs lots of support and lots of a diligence to maintain um, your SOPs and your environment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. I've I've certainly heard about cultivators moving from having clone rooms to having tissue culture labs because they get more robust results and uh, and all of that. But I think that's probably something that occurs at a larger scale cultivation site than yep. you know Absolutely. your your mom or pop craft grower. And the, and the other thing is that is it does have a lot of overhead expense to do that tissue culture because you're hiring and you're devoting space that could be normally devoted to cultivation or canopy space, depending on your, your facility and how it looks. Um, some states could consider that to be part of the facility, some don't. So uh, all that takes into consideration, like, is how much is it worth it to you to have 3,000 square feet of space dedicated to tissue culture? How are you going to get the talent to maintain that sterility? How are you going to, what happens when they leave two years from now? Like, how do you consistently, when you have so much your company um, goal is worth on this portion of your company, if your entire revenue is based on how good they are at tissue culture, um, make sure you manage the risk of that. Um, that's actually why some companies start starting to farm out this work to other companies so that they don't have to manage that whole infrastructure. Um and I think as time goes on, that's going to be what happens. And then the, so people who have the license will grow it out. They will just 
pop pop a bunch of a bunch of plants that they'll make tissue culture from, and then someone will just keep providing those clones or those tissue culture to them to grow all, all the way out. And that way, they don't have to. They can stay in their lane and focus on what they're good at. So, takes over the takes care of that overhead when when someone else does it for you. And Certainly. it's a not cost overhead, but like knowledge overhead. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I, it it also gives you somebody to point the finger at if something goes wrong. That's right. Or mm-hmm. they're the ones who are are important on maintaining that quality. So they're going to be the ones who are going to know the industry and make sure to hire the right people, and they they have the good oversight to maintain that environment. Um, it's the same thing with like testing companies like ourselves is what is the value of someone doing the testing themselves versus outsourcing it? And I give them the same pitch. Are you going to be maintaining that knowledge base? <laughs> You're going to keep learning that knowledge base. No, you should be growing the plant. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> There's enough work there. <laughs> That's a good point. Um, so I'd like to talk a little bit about um, your work gathering data to better define cannabis strains. Can you just share some of the the research you're doing there and your goals with that? Yeah. So the, the mantra of Vern is that we're trying to test, identify it, get rid of it, prevent it is the mantra that we're, we're trying to move towards. And preventing what that means is trying to find those genetic markers, trying to find those genetic traits that, uh, that give a good first line defense on your cannabis plants. Um, unfortunately, most people um, breed cannabis to the THC, CBD, whatever levels that they're wanting from the cannabinoids and terpenes, and usually ignore the pest or pathogen pressure that would allow those those plants to thrive. And so, because they're ignoring that, they they possibly are breeding in some some vulnerabilities to a lot of these cannabis genetics that are out there. And so, our mantra is try to help change that change that over time. Um, but as a very um, biotech, ag tech, normal way of agriculture that is done, um, it is very new in the cannabis industry. There is not a lot of data. There's no USDA providing a lot of funds to build this database of, of genetics knowledge. Uh, there's a lot of companies that have attempted and failed to certain extents just because cannabis is complicated. And so our extent is to be providing those bioinformatic services to help people analyze their scientific data because... Sequencing data is not small. It's not easy. Um, think of an Excel table that has 90,000 columns multiplied by 100,000 rows or so. No, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it gets complicated <laughs> nice. really fast. So um, like part of my PhD, I developed models that were 200,000 variables to understand cancer, as an example. Um, and you can derive patterns from that. And so what we kind of do is that we don't provide the sequencing services. We provide more of the analytical services to help you understand what you got. And then we can use our testing arm to develop tests to screen things that you want. So, for example, um, powdery mildew resistance. There is a couple of genes that have been identified that if you have that gene or that mutation in your plant, those plants are more likely to be resistant to powdery mildew. But guess what? Most people don't consider that when they're breeding. And so that's just one example of hundreds or possibly thousands that you could consider as you're doing your breeding program. And so we can help and partner with other breeders um, as well as develop better ways to identify that and to implement those processes in their grow room. Um, That is an area that is still very much in the baby stage across all the industry. Um, There's still a whole lot to know. Um, There's things being discovered left and right all the time. 
And so, as I said before, why not use people who are experts on this rather than trying to reinvent the wheel on your side? So, so is this kind of activity or, or research that you're doing? It are you doing it with people that are pheno hunting? Um, yes. So it's yep. it, it's similar to marker assisted breeding or. So, um, the level at which that we can do it depends on anybody's budget. Um, so there is a wide range on what's possible. So the most simple is that we can do testing that you can identify gender right off the bat. We have a test that you can run on site. So if you pop a thousand seeds, you only want females. Let's do the test on all of them. I mean, like you can screen out probably on, the, on average of 40% of them are females or are, are males. So you can get rid of them and use your resources on just that alone. Um, the more crazy ambitions are doing sequencing across the entire plant, so you can really dive into the details. And then the the more and then that you can use what's called marker assisted breeding. And essentially, what that means is that you identify whether a priori before you do the breeding or as part of your reference of your actual plants themselves, define what is a marker that you want in your cultivator. Um, some of those are known, some of them are not known. Some of them need to be for your individual grow because cannabis is quite variable, quite complicated, seven times more variable at the DNA level than humans are. So the marker that may work for you may not be the same one that works for somebody else. So it's important to identify what that is within your own cohort. And then the more crazy ambition as time goes on is actually inserting things that you want in that genome, which that is very much in its infancy at our company as well as other companies. And so there are things that could be done now that could drastically change how you grow. Um, but by and large, most people don't consider this yet. And so it's something that will happen. It will change. It's just going to be a gradual process. Um, when you have half the market that is just trying to figure out how to grow the plant, they're not really considering how to make a better plant yet. They're considering just how do you make a lot of it at, at once at the moment. And that's a uh, a minimum threshold, I would say, maybe, maybe like one percent of the whole cultivators out there are considering this type of level of knowledge. Well, I mean, one one percent of a growing group of people is is a growing number. <laughs> oh yes, <laughs> and it'll this will be norm um, because this is how we got all the corn, all the soybeans, all the stuff that we have now that has a hundred years of agriculture behind it. This is how we got really good solid corn. Um, if you if you've noticed the corn we have nowadays that's frozen on the shelf looks a whole lot better than it did 20 years ago, and that's because of processes like this. People like ourselves that are trying to vote to make a better plant, better processes across the board, is how that's happened. Um, corn, if you look at some historical pictures of what it looked like 200 years ago, looks very different than it does nowadays, and that's just because we have bred in characteristics that we want, and basically natural selected it for what we want rather than what nature wants. Which has pros and cons. <laughs> so, 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 okay. So, corn, soybean, what we grow commercially, those we call cultivars, right? Mm -hmm. But what we've been talking about here in cannabis is strains. They're not really defined enough to be considered cultivars yet, correct? I wouldn't even call them strains per se. <laughs> um, because that, def that implies that the DNA is consistent from generation to generation or from phenotype to phenotype. 
um, what what really we have here is just an N of one, a single population, a single plant that represents a whole brand or whole strain. And that presents a huge liability because guess what? That plant changes over time. Every time you take a clone, every time you make more mothers, that DNA actually is not stable. Um, the only way to really make it stable is to actually have a consistent seed process because there's lots of things that happen when you go back to seed. Um, one example is epigenetics. So epigenetics is the, the area of science that actually has nothing to do with the DNA sequence itself, but actually has part to do with the regulatory part of that DNA sequence. That there is a memory on that epigenetics. There's a memory on that. Um, it actually can actually extend three generations prior to the current generation. And so if you are just cloning over and over time, there was actually a really good paper published now I think a couple of years ago that sequenced the top, middle, and bottom of a mother plant that was a couple of years old. And there was something on the order of 20% diversity on the DNA level. And so when you're taking clones from those different sections, guess what? Now you have that diversity in your offspring. And so when you think you're doing clones, you're making the same product. Not really. <laughs> and so yeah, this is why the common practice in most industry is only keep your mother mothers around for about three or four months because they know this practice. Um, a lot of these big companies just have constant 100% pheno hunts going on year round. And think about all the money, all the expenses that go into that. When if you just had a consistent seed, you don't have to worry about that. You just plant the same thing every time and be done. Move on. Put your resources to something else. But unfortunately, because there's a hodgepodge of diversity in cannabis, which is awesome, but at the same time, predictability as a business is hard. Um, the other side is consistency as you grow throughout your life cycle of your brand or your company is a moving target. So how do you get brand recognition? How do you get consistency on your consumer experience when your plant's constantly changing on the front face, not to mention all the things that can happen after the fact. So. Right. And how does this tie in with like people that are trying to get IP on plants? If it's really variable each cycle. Yep. So um, the general rule about IP is that you can't patent nature. You can't patent something that's natural to us. Uh, this court case happened uh, with the breast cancer gene. So a pharmaceutical company a while ago identified what mutation in people's genetics actually causes breast cancer in, in a high percent of the population. And they wanted to actually patent that gene. Well, guess what? We all naturally have that gene in our body and are you now saying that you own that person's DNA? I mean, that's mind-boggling stupid. <laughs> and, so, um, and so the general is that you can't patent nature, but at the same time, you need to have some legal protection to patent all the work that's done in terms of breeding as well as the plant growing. And so the USDA, uh, there's an IP for variety. You can actually get varietals. You can get IP on them. But that IP protection is related to that actual genetics that you actually patented and have there. But so that so it's the balance between patenting something that is unique to you, but you don't necessarily have the patent on all cannabis strains that have that variety overlap. Um, and the likelihood of that happening is really, really low just because it's really, really a big genome and it has all this complexity to it. But the idea is it gives them some legal protection on that strain, but it doesn't mean that they own everything that has to come off of that cannabis plant itself. But they do own that definition that is that strain. And that definition is variable depending on who you talk to. But essentially what it involves is you sequence your variety, 
You define what that DNA sequence is. You make sure that DNA sequence is consistent. You file a IP patent to get that protection. And then that gives you some legal framework to go after anybody that steals, quote unquote, your genetics. Um, that is something that is still in infancy, I would say, in cannabis, even though there have been companies advertising for a while to do this. Um, it's still very much a moving target on what that actually means in terms of legal framework. But generally speaking, um, it is something that a lot of groups do in normal agriculture. Um, there is lots of nuances to this. Uh, like, for example, ornamentals, uh, they, they actually do patent their strains every 20 years or so just to have that protection on what they have. Um, same thing with the corn species that are out there from different companies. Uh, there's different ways to do this. But the idea, generally speaking, is that you're trying to find some definition that represents your plant but doesn't also infringe on the fact that it's a plant that other people have access to. So you can't say that this gene is mine. That's just not, that's not, that's not nature. It's nature. You can't do that. Because mm -hmm. <laughs> otherwise everybody who has cannabis seeds would be in trouble. So, yeah. <laughs> and that's the point of the patent office is to provide a pathway for innovation, but also protection. That mm -hmm. is the whole mantra of, of IP is to provide that legal framework. Otherwise, there'd be no innovation because otherwise it'd be all trade secret and you know you would never know how anybody does anything and therefore stifle innovation. Mm -hmm. can, can breeders or cultivators gather protections by uh, other means? Maybe uh, is, there, is there a way to produce seeds that um, are sterile? Or, yes, and, yep. and can you test to to facilitate that pathway as well? Um, yes and no. So there is um, like the whole idea of having a triploid, having a plant that has three copies of its genome. So cannabis has two copies. Um, so the idea, if a plant ever had four copies, it would be sterile because it's just too much genetic information. Um, this is a general principle across everything. Um, there's always a limit on how much genetic material is, is present within a cell. And therefore, if you make it so it's biologically impossible to get to that limit, you can make something sterile. So like your white seeds that are in watermelon is a good example of this. How they do that, how they make a, a seed that just has that white shell, which means it has no seed that can make a product, is that they use this concept of how much genetic material is there, or triploids, or those different kind of concepts. That's what that means. Um, so from like our testing purposes, yes, you can test for that. You can test for how many copies of the genome is there. Um, there's uh, there's ways to do that. Um, in terms of the other areas that you can go into, um, the general rule is that if you have a foreign piece of DNA in, in something, it's called a GMO, genetically modified organism, because it doesn't have DNA in there that is actually from that organism. If you don't, it's not GMO. And so you can use that as a tracker to identify these seeds. Uh, there are some companies out there that will advertise to do this for us, but the warning is, is that's considered to be a GMO plant at that point. And so there are ways to do this. Um, there are lots of other ways that you can do this in the, in the end. Uh, you can make it so that when you breed this plant with something else, it actually kills the progeny. There's lots of biological tricks on how to make this sterile. Um, and depending on what is the ultimate good path forward for cannabis is still remains to be seen. Um, there are some companies on the West coast 
that do try to, are trolls trying to understand the whole triploid and what does the outcome of that mean? But when you're talking about that, is that just if you make a triploid of one strain, it doesn't mean you're going to have that same effect if you have a triploid of another strain. And so that's why it's, the complexity is there. Um, does that help answer that question? It's it's a, the, it's I, like it's like all science. It depends. Yeah, right. <laughs> and and it's such a multifaceted question. I uh, y- you touched on what I was trying to get at the idea of of polyploidal uh, seeds and. Yeah, right. Because you you look uh, and there there's all these seedless fruits, of course, but there's also, you know, corporate seeds that won't that won't crossbreed with the field next to yours or, or whatever that is. And that seems or it like does a, and you sue them for and then you sue them. Yes. <laughs> um, we've certainly seen that occur over the last uh, several decades repeatedly. Yes. Um, but but the 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 legal IP is not necessarily the only protective route that you can go. Oh uh, no, you can do biological IP. What I mean by that is you can use biology to your favor to prevent stuff from happening. Um, we actually try to do that with some of our testing to make it impossible for people to reverse engineer what we do. <laughs> so, cool. Um, it's kind of like the whole Coca-Cola concept. No one really knows their recipe besides a few people on how they'd make that sugar caramelize the way it does. So they don't have IP protection. They have trade secret. Um, same thing with plants. You could do trade secret. You could do IP. You could copy mark, copyright it, trademark it, things of this nature, depending on what you're trying to protect. And there's not a one-size-fit-all for everybody. And even if there is, different companies will try different means to protect their stuff. But bottom line is you need some way to go after people if they steal your stuff. But the reality of it is that sometimes that's not always possible. So like, and it sounds like even the defined so-called stuff, the, the genetics, uh, they're not really stable enough to, to call them somebody's stuff yet. (laughs) And that's, that is my concern about all the people that get IP protection with cannabis is unless you are cryopreserving your cannabis strains, unless you are maintaining that stock in a way to maintain that DNA, how then do you think that five years from now it's going to be the exact same plant um, and therefore actually protected under your IP protection? And so that is the concern I have about all the groups that do IP protection is that the biological nature that is cannabis at this point, I think it's going to be debatable. Um, I have yet to see a court case that really goes after this kind of stuff to the level that I would think that it needs to be to define that. And I honestly don't think the court system wants to define that yet because they don't know. So because it's not like corn where you can stabilize it, you cryopreserve it, you know what you're going to get every single time you can count on it. We're not there for most cannabis strains. Um, mm-hmm. There are attempts. There are improvements. We are just not there yet. And how would you? Then, how would they even prove it in court? Like show a COA or something? Like saying like this is well, what you have. have. This is what they have. The, you sequence the DNA. Um, show that it hits with ninety eight percent consistency with the the strain that you have. Mm-hmm. But if your plant cultivar is constantly moving target on what that DNA is that's going to be a little difficult. <laughs> and, and, so, and the person that you're going after and in, in theory, couldn't they just like 
wait a couple cycles and then sequence the DNA later on and it would be exactly. even more different and more variable. <laughs> or you could put a mutagen on that DNA and mess up the genetics. And so therefore it's completely different from the next mm -hmm. cycle. So that's, that's what I'm saying. There's lots of biological tricks that you could get around that. And it's also kind of the crazy ideas that people have. And I think it's because of the misconception that is, what is stealing genetics? What does that actually mean to people? It usually means that their buddy gave them a clone and they didn't give them the right to sell it or whatever. But at the end of the day, um, how would you go after that to begin with? Because it's cannabis. Yeah, right. Um, how do you prove provenance? How do you prove How do you prove, prove that pathway of of that? And so that's why some companies will actually insert a barcode in the plants. But that sounds I like GMO. Argue, exactly. <laughs> I would argue it's GMO <laughs> at that point. And so then you have a whole another. I'm curious what the USDA will do at that point. So yeah, I mean, you you also said the threshold's 98 percent match. I don't know what the actual threshold is because I've not seen a court case actually litigate it. Um, I have seen lots of people from other industries use different percents. I have seen lots of people that have different legal precedent. But in terms of an actual cannabis court case, I have asked many people, some people who claim this, they say they're sworn to NDA secrecy. But if it was actually a court case, it would be public yeah, records. So right. <laughs> yeah. I don't. I'm I'm waiting for someone to prove me wrong. I want to know. I, I really want to know. Like I want to know the answer because I, I want to know the answer too. Especially because <laughs> like 98% seems pretty low. It's my understanding that humans and mice or pigs share something like 98% of their genome. Yep, so, that's exactly right. Right, right. <laughs> so I, the the difference. That's why. Is, that's why it's it's to me it's it's. So at the low end, a single point difference can have major effects on phenotypes. There are many human diseases that if you have a single mutation at the right location causes that disease. Sure. So that's, and then you also have on the other side that geneticists will consider um, genes that cross species, they call them orthologs. They mean that that gene has the same function in both species. They can have 50% homology. So you're talking about two very wide ranges on what is phenotype, what is the physical outcome. And so then if you're using DNA, that is highly versatile. But then if you use the COA, you can't use a COA because if I make a THC-CBD one-on-one ratio, there's no way that you can patent just that one, just that single ratio yourself. Because um, otherwise you'd... And the reason why that won't hold up in court is one of the things that holds up in court is precedent, legal precedent of being in the market if it's been the market for over a year and it's not secret, then it's no longer IP protected because um, it's not really usually just yours. Um, same thing goes with trademarks and copyrights. If you can prove that other people it's in use, it's not actually open for that part. So same thing goes with IP. Um, like if we develop a new technology, we start advertising and start selling it. We try to do legal protection on it. Like we publish a paper on it, for example. You really only have a year to actually get a patent on that before it's no longer yours. And so they... To receive the, the patent or file for the patent? File for the patent. Receive the patent can take three years to get the right yeah. patent. But. <laughs> they, I just wanted to clarify that. Yeah, yeah clarify <laughs> that. So, yeah, and your due diligence with the patent office, they'll say, um, it's already out there. can't be yours if it's already out there. <laughs> so... Mm -hmm. Right, but if it's your prior art that's out there within that window, you're good. You're good, as long as you're the only one. 
Yeah. Right. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> what if you did it like just before someone else? So like as long as your date is earlier than the yep. competitor. So the current market uh, with IP is whoever files first gets it. Gotcha. So um, Moderna and Pfizer are actually arguing about that <laughs> about their <laughs> vaccine. That'll be a fun court case to follow. I, so, that'll be fascinating. Asterix, I am not a lawyer. Um, I just know a lot about this stuff, but I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> so don't take anything that I say as legal advice. Yeah, good disclaimer. Yes, <laughs> excellent disclaimer. disclaimer. <laughs> um, so where do you hope to see the cannabis cultivation community in the next five years? And what do you think it would take to actually get there? I want to see the cannabis community become a normal agricultural crop. Um, what I mean by that is that um, this will play on completely unrealistic, but get rid of these rules um, because I should not have difficulty getting this plant just like I go to Lowe's and get a plant. Um, we're actually working with other cultivars, uh, working with like grapes and ornamentals and stuff like that. And I was like, oh my gosh, it's so refreshing just to go to go to the local Home Depot and grab some plant material and don't have no paperwork that I have yeah. to sign. But it's the unfortunate reality that is cannabis, though, is because this, this plant is so freaking beautiful and complicated, it's also complicated on the legal framework as what to do with all this. Um, like, for example, the whole heavy metal concept. Um, if you're growing in South Dakota where they mine uranium, you could potentially have uranium in your hemp. <laughs> Um, that's probably a strong likelihood actually and if you grow in Detroit because there's a lot of car farmers or not car but car manufacturers there the amount of lead that's in the soil is quite high they actually had to change the the level that was allowed because of that fact alone Um, and so because cannabis is weird in that context at the same time you have to have those legal frameworks to try out what that weirdness is and make sure it's safe for people Mm-hmm. Um, same thing goes with psychedelics. Like it, on one hand, you just want everybody just to do whatever they want. On the other hand, you want to kind of provide some measure of human safety component. Um, we don't let everybody just buy a nuke for the same reason. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the that would be the ideal is to have that level of flexibility, but at the same time, it's never going to be the reality, uh, at least for the foreseeable future. Um, I just would love it if people could have a better way to buy this plant that actually would match what they're looking for, as well as a consistent plant to begin with. Um, to get true medicine, you need to be able to rely upon it. You don't want to have to change what you buy or how you buy every single time you go to the dispensary. Um, if you got PTSD, you want to make sure that you don't have the, the effects of it. And if you can't rely on your medicine, how how helpful is it? Well, right, right. It's it it's it's compounded with the fact that the these cannabinoids um can push the system in either direction so if it's not consistent you might be having the opposite of medicine right exactly not just neutral but negative exactly and that's one thing that people don't talk a lot about with cannabis is that it's not like it's a universal medicine for all ailments um, like I point out at the very beginning, when I saw the cancer papers making it better, making it worse, or neutral. Um, why does it make it worse? Um, same thing with too much TAC. I mean, you can, the body likes moderation. Um, the Greeks actually said this many, many years ago that do everything in moderation. Um, Aristotle was this way. 
Um, and it's the same kind of concept with medicine. If you put too much of one thing in your body, your body is going to come back and, and reduce that load. So like THC, too much THC, the body actually reduces the amount of cell receptors so that you don't have as much effect because it doesn't like being overstimulated. It likes that balance. And so same thing goes with like your ratios. You don't want to have just one on one thing or other. You want to have a composite of everything to get the effect you're looking for. Because again, the body is going to react to it. So if you push the whole system to where you go, the body is going to be less likelihood to be resistant to that mechanism than just a single drug or a single compound. Which is why we're in this industry because um, I think the whole plant is going to be the, the answer rather than synthetics or individual component. Mm. Um, but the, the problem is, is that you have to make the math make sense to actually push it that way. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, the, so On growing and what you get. Yeah. <laughs> so. Right. Right. You said the magic word that we haven't talked too much about uh, and that's math, uh, right? You, you are a bioinformaticist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh. and my understanding is the best place to apply bioinformatics is in these scenarios where we can't really control for most of the variables and you you have very extreme variables on both sides of the equation um my my dear friend john abrams calls this the n versus p problem or the many to many Mm -hmm. problem and uh the computers are a lot better at handling that kind of math than than the people yes so um a good example I would have this when I was at Dana-Farber. We were trying to publish a model on breast cancer because we found a better predictive model um, that could actually predict survivalness on different traits within these patients. And we're trying to publish this. And I asked them the question, at what point do I have to defend what goes into my model that gives me that outcome? So they'll say like, oh, if you have five things, if you have 10 things, you have to defend like, okay, the age, the gender, the, all this different stuff actually makes the composite that is the, the product. But our model was 80 different things. And they said at that point, like, oh, that's too complicated. Um, and the reason why it's too complicated is that people talk about 2D and 3D space. If you think about 2D and 3D space, that's two or three variables. Well, if we're talking about 80 dimensional space, that's why people go, they throw their hands up and go, oh my gosh, that's too complicated. Um, I've worked in 200,000 dimensional space. And so the, the, the concept is, is that as Evan pointed out, you have the N versus P problem and statistics, you need to have enough N or number of samples that justify every single variable. If I have 200,000 variables and I need on average 30 samples for every single variable, that means I have to have a whole lot of samples. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this is why pharmaceutical companies do not like having the N versus P problem because then they have to go to the FDA and say, oh, we have five different drug combinations. It takes on average $2 billion to get one through. Two billion times five now at this point. They're going to say, hell no. <laughs> so um, so it's, it's not like it's going to be that simple of math. It's not going to be that simple of things. But people keep talking about pharmaceutical companies in this area. Pfizer bought a synthetic cannabinoid company a couple of years ago for a lot of money. They're interested. They're wanting to. All the people I work with, people think that pharmaceuticals are always greedy people. They don't, like, usually they're full of scientists trying to actually solve the problem. It's just a really hard problem. And it costs a lot of money. If, it costs a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. And so if the math is worked out that it actually takes 10 cannabinoids in combination to get it to work, the math now becomes very favorable to actually grow it normally. 
Now, my prediction is it's on the close of 100 because of just all the things that full spectrum means. And that math is very, very nice to a pharmaceutical because then you can justify, guess what? You guys all have to be botanists now. And they're not botanists, so they're going to not like that conversation. And so that is the real answer, in my opinion, to make it medicine is that you have to demonstrate that you really do need the whole plant to prove this, not just single THC or CBD. I think it's the whole effect. And I think, I think it boils down to the fact that if you use a single target or a single thing, the body's going to resist to that. And so at some point, your body's going to say, no, enough's enough. And that's why all these other drugs usually don't work for very long because they have that drug resistance factor. But if you use a whole composite, that's going to be a little different story. So in my opinion, again, I'm not a pharmacist, but let's watch a lot of pharmacists. <laughs> so... <laughs> I mean, given all the restrictions in the U.S., do you think or have you looked at any of the research in other countries? And do you think they're any closer to kind of solving the medicine problem and determining what works best? So Israel is definitely by far the leader in this space. Mm -hmm. um, they have they have um, so Raphael, um, who unfortunately recently passed, he actually made a cannabinoid research center mm -hmm. and they put out a lot of good data. They put a lot of good information. Um but unfortunately, a single country, a single group of scientists is not going to be good. Um, think about how much money we spend on cancer research in this country. You're talking about thousands and thousands of researchers, trillions of money has spent over the last several decades. And we've, we've gotten a lot better, but it's not to where you want to go, um, to an actual solution. Um, and so when you translate that to a new whole new medicine field, it's not going to just be one country. It's not going to be just us. It's not going to be just one company because it's just going to be too cost prohibitive for one group to do understand everything. Mm -hmm. um, honestly, the secret is a lot of pharmaceuticals look at the academic market to look for ideas because they don't want to spend the money to look to make their own ideas. So they'll look at ideas that are out there and go, here's an idea. Let's see if it actually works or not. And half the mm -hmm. time it doesn't uh, for various reasons. Um, and so there is a lot of research being put out of Israel, but we're talking about a whole new medicine pathway Um you need to be able to order up all the things you want to do research on. There should be cell lines that are favorable to these things or not favorable to these things. Mm -hmm. I need an example of yes and no. I need an example of all these different things. There's a lot of infrastructure that's missing in science to research on this. Um, what if you want to do imaging and you want to have a protein or uh, that fluoresces whenever THC interacts with it? Does that exist to some extent? What about all the other things that are out there? Like you, you need to have a whole infrastructure in place to make cannabis research an actual reality. Mm -hmm. um, it's, even if it becomes federally legal, it's still going to take several years to get that infrastructure in place to make it, to get it really rolling. Mm -hmm. um, and that's just the reality sure. of a brand new area of scientists, uh, our science, um, as an example. So yeah. yes, watching, um, I'm excited, but there is a whole lot of information that's missing. Um, and honestly, most of these papers, most of these research that gets published doesn't have the sample power or the number of things to actually prove that their hypothesis is true. It just is enough data to say, maybe that's true, but we should expand what we're looking at. So that's what I see a lot of this as is ideas on how to make it powerful, but not a lot of things to follow through yet. Hmm. And that will change. I guarantee it. It's like we're just scratching the surface. Oh, and I love it. That's why I'm here. It's like, <laughs> I like problems. That's why I'm here. And that's why I, I joined the cannabis industry because um, this is this is like 
like being Mendel or being like any scientist at the very beginning of, of a whole market going, well, holy cow, I get to, I get to be part of the greats. I get to be, see what, what, what's there. Um, I get to be part of discovering radiation or discovering all these different things and discovering cannabis. We can't even probably name the things we're going to discover as time goes on. I, I don't think discovering radiation worked too well, worked out too well, well for the Curies. <laughs> no, it did not. But the, le- the level of just awesomeness of like, yes. yeah, we found something. I'm sure they didn't think that, but that's a bad example. <laughs> but I get it. The, the, yeah, the cornerstone sort of foundational research. We'll, 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 we'll use Mendel to discover yeah. genetics. <laughs> He's a little safer, a little monk. Working with his peas. Working with his pea plants. <laughs> Um, he got insanely lucky, but that's a different story. <laughs> that, yeah, that's a whole nother story. When, when I first started learning about the nuances of that story, I was blown away because it, when you learn about Mendel, it's in like, you know, ninth grade biology and you're like, yeah. oh, this is really straightforward. Pundit squares really and alleles. Yeah. <laughs> you only need to learn two things. Oh, guess what? Your blue eye is actually related to a hundred different things. It's more complicated from there. <laughs> Guess what? Science is hard. Yeah. Science is complicated. <laughs> most is things, complicated. most things worth doing are are difficult and complicated. Oh, yeah, mm, absolutely. Uh, okay, I think we're getting to the end here. Um, uh, so, is there anything else that you'd like to add that we haven't covered or that we did cover, and you you want to tack on to? Um. I think what I would say, because uh, I'm, I'm sure that some of the people that listen to this are going to be new to the cannabis industry. And I just want to give some advice from someone who was not a smoker, not somebody as part of the traditional environment, but had to kind of learn what was the rules kind of without spoken rules. Um, what I would strongly advocate is that so many people come to this industry thinking they know what they're talking about, but doesn't matter your education, doesn't matter your background, just sit up shut up, listen, ask questions. And then after you spend some time just kind of um, marinating in that knowledge, then you can come up with some ideas because um, there is a lot of problems in this industry, but there's also been a lot of attempts at solutions. And so learn from people that have been in this industry before going after on their own, just because there's, there is a way to do this. Um, you're not the first state to get a license for cannabis. You're not the first state to grow it. You're not the first state to sell it. You're not the first thing to do anything in this industry. There have been people from the 80s and earlier that have been doing this for a while. So listen to them, talk to them, ask questions, um, and then think and improve upon this whole industry. It's wonderful. <laughs> so that's what I would to say. Advocate for everybody. So Wonderful. I had to learn, redefine my dictionary on several ideas when I came to this industry because genetics does not mean genetics in this <laughs> No. <laughs> As an example. <laughs> no, I suppose there, there has been some misapplied industry jargon for sure. <laughs> um, no, that's great advice. That's great advice. And uh, especially if you're coming from a scientific area into cannabis, uh, there, there are some closely held assumptions that need to be challenged for, for certain. Um, I'd also, before we go, like to um, offer our listeners a discount at your website, uh, vernbio.com. That's V-E-R-N-E, like Jules Verne. Um, 
and we'll use the discount code NOID10 for 10% off of uh, the eye test line, which maybe you'd like to talk just a little bit more about that eye test line and, and what is uh, available there. Sure. So um, eye test is essentially using um, the powerfulness that is molecular biology and science and allowing you to do the test on site. Um, so what essentially it does is it looks for a single target it amplifies that to a detectable level and it gives you a yes or no answer to whatever you're looking for. So in the case of like feminized or gender, it looks as yes or no for the male, if it's there. Hopsley and viroid is another big powerful one because that way you get an immediate test within 30 minutes to let you know if it's there or not. And the idea, the principle behind this is it gives the power of science to anybody. Uh, we teach anybody within five minutes on how to run this operation and you can get some sophisticated level of details right on site. And so the the power of this is that you can get an immediate answer and not waste time uh, with, with going forward. And that product line will be expanded as time goes on because we're constantly innovating. Awesome. I, they're great tests and uh, well worth uh, incorporating into your cultivation process. And they are used, I cannot say publicly who uses them necessarily, but they are used throughout the United States as well as internationally. Um, because because people don't tend to like people to know that they're testing for pathogens, which is weird to me, but it is what it is. <laughs> so. Is it required in some states? Um, yes, but they don't want you to know that. And they don't want you to know that they do it. And um, it's just cannabis people are weird. They don't want people to know what they do, even though they all do the same thing. I can tell you that. <laughs> so. These, I think, these are all artifacts of prohibition, and yep, absolutely, you, you, I can't tell you how many people don't even keep track of data because they keep everything in their head because they don't want anybody to just steal it. To, <laughs> they tell e me. E either to steal it or their lab notebooks be evidence used against them. Yep. Oh yeah, it's it's a interesting. Interesting market, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Before we wrap up, can you um, share which journal your peer-reviewed articles are going to be coming out in later this year? Do you know yet? Um, I know, but I don't remember. Okay, um, it's fine. We can just add it to the footnotes. Yeah, we can add it to the footnotes. Yeah, it's fine. I know they're going to be submitted, but I don't remember the top of my head because Dr. Zamir is the one in charge of that. Okay. Um, I'm the write-along. He is the main main brute force <laughs> well he he has the beautiful advantage of being in a federally legal nation where his university can actually partner across the the whole country oh yeah and he actually works for these cannabis companies so he has a nice marriage between academic federal funded and access to the plant so it's a nice beautiful marriage that i wish would be more commonplace in the united states but we'll get there yeah you know, it, one thing cannabis is really good at is seeing a good idea, capturing it and proliferating it. Yeah. So. And changing minds. It's the easiest way to convince people to think about the plant is go, go actually grow it, go actually play with it, go try it out. Seeing is believing. Um, can't tell people will talk about their joint pain. Go take some CBD oil and tell me how you feel after an hour. And they come back and go, whoa, it actually worked. Yeah. <laughs> tell me more. <laughs> so. That actually happened to my mother. She was like having all this back pain. And I was like, here, try this 
CBD oil oh, yeah. at a show. And she was like, oh, my God, it actually works. I'm like, yeah. I told you. Yeah. <laughs> it's real. It's real. <laughs> I'm not making this up. I, I, I promise we're not all wasting our time working on this regularly. <laughs> exactly. We're not making this up just for fun. <laughs> so. Awesome. Well, thanks for being with us today, Nathan. My we pleasure. certainly appreciate all your knowledge and your passion to help educate the cannabis community. I look forward to coming again and talking more and keep engaging with the industry. Uh, I look forward to seeing all of you at different th- places. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Great. A pleasure.